Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Well, ladies and gentlemen, have you ever asked yourself the question, how do bees avoid flying into other bees or into buildings? I mean, they just buzz around like that. You rarely see them just go... Well, the answer is, apparently, because they don't eat pesticides. Or they didn't. But now, traces of neonicotinoid pesticides have been found to impair a flying insect's ability to spot predators and avoid collisions with objects in their path. There'll be more bee bumping coming your way. This is uh, findings from research at the University of Saskatchewan. They have a university? Yeah. Residual traces of these widely used pesticides, these neonics, can profoundly affect a flying insect's ability to detect movement. That's a skill crucial to survival, according to the paper published in the journal Neurotoxicology. I read it for the pictures of uh, female insects. Within an hour being treated with tiny amounts of neonics, or their metabolites, which are uh, trace elements present after the insecticide begins to break down, and who doesn't? The flying insects did not turn, glide, or stop to avoid collision. Those would be the three things you'd want to do, I'd think. Maybe, maybe they know something else. Just disappear magically. Our findings suggest that very low doses of the pesticide or its metabolic products can fr- profoundly and negatively affect motion detection systems that flying insects such as locusts, grasshoppers, and bees need for survival says the Vice Dean of Research, Scholarly and Artistic Work at USASC. Of course it would be called USASC. Why would you ask? Although they're found in the environment and insects can be exposed to them, metabolites are not typically tested for toxicity. Our results suggest they should be, he says. Neonics are the most widely used class of insecticides in the world. But the bees don't get a vote, you see. And they are neurotoxins, which I believe is why they, how they work. The European Union ha, has restricted use of some neonics following concern over their impact on bees. There have been proposals to restrict their use in Canada. They have bees in Canada? Well, around the University of Saskatchewan, I think. Although neonicotinoids can break down into different compounds and can even exist in trace elements in the environment, as we say... As I said a moment ago, they're not typically tested for toxicity. Locusts exposed to trace elements of the neonicotinoid imidacloprid. Actually, just asked to pronounce it would confuse a locust. But though they were unable to detect object motion in their field of view, when dosed with highly, high, slightly higher amounts, locusts were unable to fly straight or failed to take off at all. Where are you going to get your plague from now? The findings by researchers at USASC are part of a wider USASC research program into the impact of trace elements of neonics and other insecticides on flying insects. Good vision is crucial to insect survival as it allows them to see predators, including larger insects and birds, and avoid collisions with other insects or objects in their path. The motion detector neurons of locusts were found to be less sensitive after being treated with some neonics. That's, that's a more of a treatment than a treat. Um, in other news of how we're 
helping our environment fade away. A French court this week upheld a guilty verdict against Monsanto over the poisoning of a farmer who suffered neurological damage after using one of its weed killers. This is the latest legal setback for the company over its controversial poisons. Cereal farmer Paul Francois, that's got to be a fake name, has been fighting Monsanto, a formerly U.S. company was bought by German company Bayer. Bayer, we Germans call it. We call it Bayer. We won the war. In the first ruling of its kind against Monsanto anywhere in the world, a French court way back in 2012 found it guilty of poisoning Francois. He began experiencing symptoms including blackouts, headaches, and loss of balance and memory after inhaling fumes while using the now banned weed killer Lasso. Monsanto appealed and lost four years ago. Went a third round. Francois denounced what he called years of legal harassment by Monsanto, which can still appeal this week's ruling by the Cour de Cassation. The ruling, he said, was a message to the government, which he earned to ban, urged to ban other toxic pesticides that contain glyphosate. Why, that would be Monsanto's top-selling Roundup. Yeah, they banned Lasso, but they haven't banned Roundup yet. Or 10-gallon. Francois said he fell ill in 2004 after accidentally inhaling fumes from a vat containing lasso. You'd want to really stay away from the vats. That's a monochlorobenzene-based weed killer that was legal in France until 2007, but had already been banned in 1985 in Canada and in 1992 in Belgium and Britain. You see, some countries are ahead of the curve, and then there's the U.S. of A., he said Monsanto was aware of Lasso's dangers long before it was withdrawn from the French market. So um, it's the latest conviction against Monsanto involving its weed killers and pesticides. Last month, the San Francisco court ordered $80 million payout to a retiree who blames Roundup, which contains glyphosate, for causing his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The company said it would appeal... It faces thousands of similar lawsuits in the United States. It already has been ordered to pay $78.5 million to a California groundskeeper who attributed his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma to Roundup, as well as to using Ranger Pro. Monsanto denies Roundup causes cancer and challenges findings by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. What would they know? Which classified glyphosate as a probable carcinogen way back in 2015. Bayer, the German company that bought Monsanto, has seen its stock plunge 40% since the takeover was completed, largely reflecting fears of Monsanto's plague of lawsuits. See how I did that? Now to um, a subject that has nothing to do with what we're doing to the earth and its creatures. This um, This is a plea for journalistic transparency, ladies and gentlemen. You know, um, when newspapers publish opinion pieces, they um, habitually give you a little bit of background information on the writer of the piece. It's just a, it's just it's just good journalistic practice. So here we have a um, an, an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times. Yes, there's still a Los Angeles Times, um, and it's really a defense of the Electoral College. It's, it's a perfectly respectable 
argument in favor of the Electoral College. I don't happen to necessarily agree with it. But here is the description of the author. John Yoo is a law professor at UC Berkeley, a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. Well, you may gather from that that he likes visiting, but you wouldn't gather from that why he's best known. He wrote during his time in the Bush administration the memo that said, it's okay to torture. Hello, welcome to the show. Just a reminder. He just rode and ran. Torture memo man. He went and banned banned. Torture memo man. You got you some detainees. You don't know what to do. Do you read them their Miranda rights? Or cover them with poo? Are you doing something illegal? Or proper through and through? There's only one guy to call. The one to ask is you. That he's a bad mother. He's in that secret plan. Change their point of view. But before you waterboard them, you wonder could they sue? One guy has got the answer, the one to ask is you. Shut your mouth, I'm talking about God. You could, it's you. He just rose and ran. Live from London. Wow. Where it's freezing. What's going on here? It's April. Don't they have calendars in this place? I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, 
News of America's Longest War. It just goes on and on. Not the forever war, just the longest war. Just days after the United States government revoked the visa of the International Criminal Court's prosecutor, that same court's judges rejected the prosecutor's request to open an investigation into alleged war crimes by U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Isn't that a nutty coincidence? The decision which Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda may appeal angered human rights groups. It means that neither the Taliban, the Afghan government, nor the United States will face any investigation at the International Court for Alleged Crimes, dating mostly from 2003 to 2004, when the war was good. Now, it was good for President Obama in 2008, too. In the ruling, judges said Bensouda's case seemed to have met the court's criteria for jurisdiction and admissibility, but given an array of practical considerations that made chances of success remote, it didn't make sense to pursue it further. Well, they're thinking like, uh, you know, practical bidding men. They cited a failure to gather evidence at an early stage, a lack of cooperation from the governments involved. Yeah, why would they... I'm, you're thinking about work and th- you want them... And the likely costs as prohibitive. Those war crimes prosecutions, never cheap, you know. Stick with the, with the African dictators. The current circumstances of the situation in Afghanistan are such as to make the prospects for a successful investigation and prosecution extremely limited, the judges said in a two-to-one ruling. The prosecutor said her office would consider all available legal remedies. An associate professor of international criminal law at Amsterdam University, Kevin Heller, said the decision appeared to impose significant hurdles on any case before the International Criminal Court in terms of the chances of a successful prosecution. If these are the criteria, they're never going to open an investigation, he said, demonstrating his keen grasp of the obvious. In 2006, Bensouda's predecessor opened an examination to alleged war crimes by all, all parties in Afghanistan, including the possible role of U.S. personnel, in relation to the detention of suspects. Hey, John, you, that's you. Bensouda took over the dossier in 2010, but didn't request a formal investigation until a couple years ago. And the United States revoked the prosecutor's entry visa earlier this month after Secretary of State Pompeo, he's putting the pomp back in Pompeo, said last month Washington would withdraw or deny visas to any court staff investigating possible war crimes by U.S. forces or allies in Afghanistan. So it's not a coincidence at all. It's a system. ICC prosecutors said four years ago they had evidence suggesting international forces in Afghanistan had caused serious harm to detainees by subjecting them to physical and psychological abuse. They also noted there was evidence of violations committed by the Taliban and forces of the Afghan government. Human rights and victims organizations in Kabul called the, this week's ruling, quote, absolutely shocking, unquote. The court has convicted three men for war crimes and crimes against humanity since it was set up almost 20 years ago. Two Congolese warlords and a former Islamist rebel who admitted wrecking holy shrines during a conflict in Mali. Well, those are, those are cheap ones. 
Those are easy to do. I bet they got the cooperation of somebody. But um, no, no, you're not going to. You don't really want to put yourself through all that, do you? No, I don't think so. News of America's longest war, ladies and gentlemen. I'm over here. I just walked over here to take a look out the uh, window, but there's nothing to see except another wall. So now it's time for news of the war, won't you? Soft, listen to the war. We can listen to the war. Well, last week we had news. I think it was last week about I think it was some glaciers that weren't shrinking as fast as we thought. This week, Earth's glaciers are melting much faster than scientists thought. Anyway, this is the Associated Press. A new study shows they're losing 369 billion tons of snow and ice each year. Not the Associated Press, the glaciers. More than half of that loss is in North America. Hey, we're number one. The most comprehensive measurement of glaciers worldwide found that thousands of inland masses of snow compressed into ice are shrinking 18% faster than an international panel of scientists thought back in 2013, when glaciers were good. The world's glaciers are shrinking five times faster now than they were in the 1960s. Their melt is accelerating due to global warming, adding more water to already rising seas, according to the study. Over the 30 years, suddenly almost all regions started losing mass at the same time, said the lead author of the World Glacier Monitoring Service at the University of Zurich. A lot of universities around the world, don't you notice? That's clearly climate change if you look at the global picture, he said. The glaciers shrinking fastest are in Central Europe, check. The Caucasus region, check. Western Canada, check. The U.S. lower 48, whoops. New Zealand and near the tropics. Glaciers there in these places are losing more than 1% of their mass each year, according to a study published this week in the journal Nature. At, in these regions, at the current re- loss rate, the glaciers will not survive this century, says the uh, director of the Glacier Monitoring Service. He'll have nothing to monitor. Since 1961, the world has lost nine point, sorry, 10.6 trillion tons of ice and snow. That's enough to cover the lower 48 in about four feet of ice. Feels like that in London. Scientists have known for a long time that climate change caused by human activities like burning coal, gasoline, and diesel for electricity and transport is making Earth lose its ice. The study is telling us there's much more to the story, says the director of the National Snow and Ice Center in Boulder, who wasn't part of this study. The influence of glaciers on sea level is bigger than we thought. He says, you want to sell that coastal property? Glaciers grow in winter and shrink in summer, but as the earth is warm, they're growing less and shrinking more. And, of course, the Arctic, where there's a lot of glaciers, is uh, warming 2.8 times faster than the rest of the northern hemisphere. It's in steroids. It's hyperactive, says the lead author of another study in environmental research letters confirming faster melting and other changes in the Arctic. And speaking of the Arctic, the Arctic is being pushed into an entirely new climate, one that's outside the experience of longtime residents and native wildlife. 
according to a new report in the journal Environmental Research Letters. It's undergoing profound changes that are affecting the rest of the world from the melting of permafrost, and that releases more greenhouse gases to the disappearance of sea ice. Recent events in Alaska point this out. Alaska, well, ask Sarah Palin. She's looking at it right now. She can see it from Russia. This year, Alaska experienced its warmest March on record and warmest October through March. state had its warmest six years on record. People are coping in Alaska with an unusually early start to spring. I guess that means they're already sneezing. Ice breakups on rivers, life-threatening hunts for food in native communities, and many other impacts. The likelihood that Barrow, now known as Utkiagvik, I'm going to call it Barrow, would reach this year's March average temperatures, had a 1 in 250,000 chance of occurring in a given year. So it's unlikely. In Talkeetna, north of Anchorage, workers who produced birch syrup had to be called in on an emergency basis several weeks earlier than normal because temperatures were rising so quickly, according to meteorologists for the National Weather Service, Dave Snyder. He thinks the Nanana ice tripod, a webcam of a big stick in the middle of a frozen river, will melt out earlier this year. Earliest date is April 20th, he says. I just like saying Nanana ice tripod. March is no fluke. He says it doesn't appear to be a one-off if you do the stats. A new Arctic has emerged during the past 40 years. Due to higher air and sea temperatures, land-based ice in Alaska is being lost at the rate of about 14,000 tons per second. Is that possible? It's part of an emerging genre of climate reports sounding the klaxon that the future is now in terms of virtually all observable Arctic climate indicators. Earth's, more on the same subject, I guess, Earth's glaciers lost 9 trillion U.S. tons in the 55 years between 1961 and 2016. An international team of scientists used satellite and direct field observations to conclude that Earth's glaciers have melted that profound sum of ice in the last half century, publishing the report in Nature. I guess... I guess we're we're doing. I, I guess we're having an effect, after all. I guess I guess we're really important. I think we've proved it now. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. It is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. So, um, on a less less grim. I mean, it is grim. Let's let's face it. It's grim. That's grim. But uh, this is. Uh, just a little more comical. You remember the United States Army Corps of Engineers, the Let Us Try people? They're uh, at work building something on the U.S.-Mexican border. That's got to scare Donald Trump. The Corps has awarded contracts totaling nearly $1 billion for removal and replacement of vehicle fencing, replacing it with pedestrian fencing along two sections of the U.S.-Mexico border. Now, if if I were um, looking back to the Corps' work on the hurricane protection system in New Orleans pre-2005, I'd say that fencing's going to leak. The Corps said in a statement this week that 46 miles of bollard-style barrier, not just bollards, but bollard-style, will be installed near Columbus, New Mexico, 
and 11 miles of it will be installed near Yuma. A, a company in Galveston actually got the contract for the New Mexico work, and a, a company in Bozeman, Montana, got the contract for uh, the Arizona work. The Corps said the fencing will, quote, help impede and deny illegal border crossings and smuggling of drugs and humans. And if I know the Corps, that means more smuggling of drugs and humans. And this story made um, news, I think, in, in a lot of media this week. The story of the deadly fungal infection that's resistant to major antimicrobial medications spreading globally. Global, Tom? Globally. Globally. Thank you. Needed a little help there. Scientists aren't sure where it came from, the fungus. It's called Candida auris, the yeast that normally lives harmlessly on the skin and mucous membranes. Ugh. Excuse me. I'm just going to do a little hygiene work there. But according to the New York Times, a drug-resistant form of the fungus has popped up across the globe. Well, if it lives harmlessly, why do you need drugs? It's a creature from the Black Lagoon, says the head of the fungal branch of the Centers for Disease Control. It's bubbled up, and now it's everywhere. It first issued an alert about it way back in 2016, today describing it as a serious threat. The yeast was first discovered in 2009 from the, I hope you're not eating, ear discharge of a patient in Japan. Most uh, strains of Candida auris are resistant to at least one antifungal drug class. More than one-third of the strains are resistant to two. A subset of strains are resistant to all three. What makes the infection even more alarming? I'm not alarmed yet because I don't know what's bad about this fungus. The fungus persists on surfaces and has been documented spreading from person to person within hospitals and clinics. CDC has received 587 reports of cases in the United States. Oh, I see. The infections by this fungus are most deadly for those who've already got compromised immune systems, including the elderly and very young. It typically spreads within healthcare facilities, often affecting those who are already in precarious health. The strains of drug-resistant C. auris are genetically distant, distinct sorry, on different continents, suggesting the drug resistance is invo- evolving separately but simultaneously worldwide, and it's unclear what's causing this rise in these fungal superbugs. I said, superbugs. Eu faço samba e amor Até mais tarde E tenho muito sono De manhã Escuto a correria Da cidade Que arde E apresso o dia de De madrugada a gente ainda se ama E a fábrica começa a cozinhar O trânsito contorna a nossa cama 
nosso eterno espreguiça No colo da bem-vinda Companheira No corpo do bendito violão Eu faço samba e amor Inteira, não tenho aqui prestar satisfação. Eu faço samba e amor até mais tarde. From London, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the godly. In November 2015, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints instituted a policy deeming same-sex married couples apostates and barring their children from baby blessings and baptisms and other words beginning with B. Such harsh and restrictive rules triggered widespread protests, according to the Salt Lake Tribune, and soul-searching. Hundreds, maybe more, resigned their church memberships. Believers felt wounded and betrayed. Families were torn, tensions erupted. Some were disciplined by the church. Some died by suicide. This week, the faith walked back all the hotly disputed elements. Church rituals for children are now okay. LGBTQ couples are not labeled apostates. The shift came by Mormon historical standards in an astonishingly rapid reversal. Generally, church policies are changed much more slowly, says historian Matthew Bowman, author of The Mormon People. Often when they do change, there is not this sort of announcement. The speed of the about-face, he says, reflects the turbulence that this policy and its implementation created among members as well as among bishops. The new rules 
were unveiled by the first counselor to church president, Russell Nelson, at a morning leadership training session for male area presidencies and top female officials. Previously, our handbook characterized same-gender marriage by a member as apostasy. While we still consider such a marriage to be a serious transgression, it will not be treated as apostasy for purposes of church discipline, says the first counselor. Instead, the immoral conduct will be in heterosexual or homosexual relationships will be treated in the same way. The revamped policy clears the way for babies of such couples to be blessed And meanwhile, as they say in the news, former Pope Benedict XVI this week blamed the Catholic clerical sex abuse scandals on the 1960s sexual revolution and a collapse in faith in the West. He doesn't mean, I think, in the Mountain West. I think he means he immediately drew criticism from some theologians, the ex-pontiff who retired six years ago, and chose to be known thereafter as Pope Emeritus. That's how I know. That's how I think of him. He he said responsibility for the crises rocking the Catholic Church globally. Tom? Globally. Yeah. Lay with the fight for an all-out sexual freedom, one which no longer admitted any norms. I used to go to norms. not anymore. He asserted that pedophilia reached such proportions because of the absence of God. Part of the physiognomy of the revolution of 68 was that pedophilia was then also diagnosed as allowed and appropriate, said the former Joseph Ratzinger. Turning 92 next week, he wrote a 6,000-word essay for Clarusblatt, a German monthly magazine for clergy. Clarusblatt. Benedict said the direct consequence of the 1960s period of counterculture and sexual activism in Europe and America was, quote, the collapse of the next generation of priests in those years and the very high number of laicizations, priests leaving the church. It was a, it was a supply problem. Back before his elevation to the papacy, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, he headed the Vatican Department that investigates sexual abuse. Some might call that irony. Some theologians were quick to criticize Benedict's analysis, which appeared to go against efforts by a successor to deal with the church's global abuse crisis. A professor of social ethics at Santa Clara University's Jesuit School of Theology said the letter was deeply flawed, profoundly troubling. A Catholic theologian, Brian Flanagan, described the letter as embarrassing. Vatican expert Joshua McElwee wrote in the National Catholic Reporter, Benedict's letter does not address structural issues that abetted abuse cover-up or Benedict's own contested 24-year role as head of the Vatican's powerful doctrinal office. The German ex-pope said in his essay that the sexual revolution also led to the, quote, establishment in various seminaries of homosexual cliques, which acted more or less openly and significantly changed the climate Unquote. Says a German former nun and abuse victim, quote, it's hard to believe he really wrote this, unquote. I don't know. 
I kind of think it's it's in character. All right, ladies and gentlemen, now let's get along to um, the news. I, 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 I'm going to take a certain amount of pride in how little I've mentioned the name of the current president of the United States in the last few weeks on this program, but now we, we must get to it. The week started with, well, there's like a, a, a policy of the week now that he has, uh, bright ideas with regard to the, um, the new rise in migrants heading for the southern border of the United States. Last week, it was closing the border. This week, after the um, President, <laughs> President Trump forced the resignation of his DH, uh, Homeland Security Secretary, Kirsten Nielsen, uh, who was an ally of his former chief of staff, John Kelly, replaced by an acting chief of staff now. Anyway, this week's idea was to, um, after getting rid of the DHS secretary and, and several other people in the, in the Department of Homeland Security, it's almost as if Trump's hardline buddy on the issue of immigration, Stephen Miller, is uh, saying, well, get rid of all the officials. You can act as acting whatever you are. President. Anyway, his um, policy this week is sending the migrants, the um, un- don- undocumented migrants, to sent, uh, sanctuary cities. These are the cities that uh, have announced they will not co- their police will not cooperate with immigration officials in aiding in deportations, which uh, makes us wonder what next week's big idea might be. In the meantime, as you know, nice people doing nice things at uh, Nice Corp, have split off its movie studio, its TV studio, sold them to Disney. So you'll, uh, those Simpsons reruns you've been watching for free, you're going to have to pay for pretty soon. And there's a a story floating around about uh, the uh, Murdoch family. Murdoch is Rupert Murdoch, head of Nice Corp, is of course friend and supporter of Donald Trump. Um, In that part of Nice Corp that remains, the uh, battle for succession is over. The older brother, Lachlan, took over, and um, the other brother, James, has, for the moment, kind of wandered off the reservation. And um, just before all that happened, a, um, a host on Fox News Judge Deneen Pirro, one of Trump's favorites, was suspended. People thought she might be fired or whatever. She was suspended for two weeks because uh, she said that uh, the Congress, the the um, Somali refugee, or you know, I think she's a refugee, uh, and Islamic Congresswoman, Congressperson Omar, was. Uh, Clearly not an American because she wore a hijab. So Judge Janine was uh, suspended for two weeks. For that. But uh, President Trump took time from his busy schedule to say she she should be rest- you know she should be restored. She should be put back on the air. Uh, it 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 sounds if you boil it down something like this. This week, for the first time, a problem that can't be solved gets solved again. And for the businessman turned chief executive, no team acts better than an acting team. Mick. Hey, 
acting chief of staff reporting for acting duty. Right. But maybe you're only acting like you're reporting. Is that paranoid? I don't think so, right? Sir, the important point is we're winning. I can tell you this. You're right. But uh, the deep state at the immigration bureaucracy keeps telling me we can't win. Well, they are saying it's going to cost a lot to ship all the detainees to sanctuary cities, from what I understand. Which uh, would make our winning somewhat less... Victorian. Okay, okay. But so we could declare all the cities along the border sanctuary cities mm -hmm. and then just leave the detainees where they are. Win, freaking win. You could make that happen. Believe me. Okay, I, I, I did ask our lawyers about that. Hey, I know from lawyers, mm -hmm. they'll tell you you're waist deep in dog crap and you tell them here's 100K, start digging, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you think lying Michael Cohen got rich by boning up on the freaking law? Anyway, they say we can't infringe on a city's right to decide whether it's a sanctuary city or not. <sighs> Otherwise, <laughs> we'd just declare them all not. Oh, hold it, hold it, hold it. That's the best idea I've heard yet. What's the matter with stupid Steve Miller? He doesn't come up with ideas like that. I should fire his bald ass. Maybe he talked to our lawyers. Yeah. But I think we're still getting good mileage out of the... Uh, Emergency declaration. Yeah, it's good. It's real good, but uh, we're not doing enough emergency-style stuff, are we? Such as? Mm, sirens. Sirens in border towns. It would scare people. Really loud sirens and maybe like a, a Darth Vader-type voice saying, Emergency! Every couple of minutes. We'd scare the crap out of the smugglers, believe me. Might get some pushback from the locals. Hey, genius. Name me a city where the locals work for Trump. There weren't any. No cities for Trump. You saw the rally maps. We didn't hold a rally in any town large enough to have a major league team. In any sport. Not even friggin' soccer. All right, sir. I'll check out Sirens. But let's go beyond the emergency thing. Really. That's last season's plot line. But here's what I need you to work on. Yes, sir. The aliens come to the border in their caravans or their whatever. Our ICE people, they're great people. They asked me to let them do this. They inject the aliens with a serum that puts them under, and then we just shove them back across the border. And then they're like zombies in Mexico. And Mexico has to pay for it. Pay for what, sirs? Food and shelter for the zombies? That's the beauty part. Zombies hardly eat anything. Everybody knows that. So it all starts with the serum thing. Can you do that? Okay, again, we're going to have to... Uh... See if federal agents have the power, or I should say the right, to inject non-citizens with anything. That can turn aliens into zombies. Including that. I, I should hear back by nightfall. Mick, I'm going to tweet about this first thing tomorrow morning. First tweet hot off the crapper. So let's do this thing, right? At least make sure nobody from the deep state department tries to walk this back, okay? I'll give it my best shot, sir. See, John Kelly would have tried to talk him out of it or sabotage the plan to, uh, quotes, protect Mr. Trump. <laughs> and where is John today? I'm asking. I, literally, I have no idea where he is. Donald. Rupert. I liked we're full. <laughs> Great branding. Mm -hmm. Our stomachs are full. Right. Our wallets are full. Right. It's bragging while apologizing while saying keep out. Brilliant, Don. It just popped into my head. You know, when I've got that rally energy flowing, that's when my brain really starts clicking. 
If I had a rally before doing my Trump steak commercials, we'd still be shoving meat down America's throat. Number one son says hello. Wants to know if there's anything you need from us. What happened to number two son? Which, which was he, James? Ah, they will fly the coop for a while. Then they all come back. You know that. It's the magnetic attraction of a very powerful father figure. Oh, father. It took Eric years to get over the fact that he wasn't named after me, too. Yeah, sure. That was one reason there was never a Rupert Jr. Mm. What were the other reasons? I don't know if there were any. So Yeah, look, I do have a little task for you this week. That's what I'm here for. You know I love Judge Janine. She's whipping boy smart. Oh, look, her suspension is over. She's back on. I know, but only once a week. You really could put her on every night. I learned so much from her about how right I am. Yeah. Prime time schedule pretty solid right now. No place to put her if I wanted to. Ah, there are nights when I'm not sure that Carlson guy is in my corner. Yeah. But hey, maybe he's just trying too hard to do the uh, fair and balanced thing. <laughs> okay. One of the tasks for you. Sure. You know Sarah Huckabee Sanders' dad, Mike Sanders? Huckabee. Well, it's one of the two. Anyway, he can't run again. His band doesn't get any gigs. He's hanging around his daughter with a real poor me vibe. Oh, he used to have a show with us. Right, right. So, your task this week... Look, we'll hire him back. Give me a little uh, office. Find a weekend slot for him. You could do that, right? Well, have to check with number one son... Sure, but he hasn't said no to me yet. New team, new tasks, same mission. We're going to make Sanctuary Cities great again. Now, the world is his boardroom. Via Presidentus, this week, he's full.
Now, ladies and gentlemen, time for the Apologies of the Week. British Airways. Oh, well, yes, they apologized to passengers following an in-flight scare during which the plane's oxygen masks were mistakenly released. Where the hell are they in first class anyway? Or business class? Well, they're either on the side or the bottom of the thing. TV screens and lights went dark less than two hours into a Monday morning flight from Singapore to London before an automated voice told passengers to put on their masks, announcing it was not a drill. It wasn't. It was a technical issue. BA apologized to passengers and um, I guess gave them their masks back. After becoming one of 13 parents to say they will plead guilty in the nationwide college admission scandal, actress Felicity Hoffman, Huffman, put out a lengthy emotional statement this week acknowledging guilt and expressing shame and regret. Desperate housewife actress, housewives actress, offered no excuses in apologizing for the pain she'd caused the educational community. Well, what a lovely community that is. And to her friends and family, notably, notably her eldest daughter, 18. <laughs> I don't think that's the daughter's name. I think that's her age. 
Huffman was charged with paying 15 grand to admissions consultant Rick Singer to have her daughter's SAT scores illegally boosted. She insisted her daughter had no knowledge of her actions, admitting she had, quote, betrayed her. She said she especially wanted to apologize to the students who work hard every day to get into college and to their parents who make tremendous sacrifices to support their children and do so honestly. My desire to help my daughter is no excuse to break the law or engage in dishonesty, she said. Another actress apology from Smallville actress Allison Mack. She apologized in court for her involvement with the controversial cult-like self-help group Nevixim after pleading guilty to racketeering charges, saying, I'm very sorry for who I've hurt. I think she meant whom, but what are you going to do? She pleaded guilty to one count of racketeering, one count of racketeering conspiracy. She said, I've come to the conclusion I may, must take full responsibility for my conduct. And that's why I'm pleading guilty today. Prosecutors had accused her of recruiting sex slaves for Keith Ranieri, who co-founded the cult and its subgroup DOS, described as an all-female secret society of masters and slaves in which women were allegedly forced to be sexually subservient, subservient to Ranieri. I'm very sorry for the victims of this case, Allison Mack said. I'm very sorry for who I've hurt through my misguided adherence to Keith Ranieri's teachings. Facebook has apologized. This week's Facebook apology goes to a disability rights activist after he was told people might find images of disabled people disturbing. Simon Sansom, who runs Ability Access, discovered Facebook had blocked his page from being shared with new users. Facebook said its employees gave Simon incorrect information. UK grocery chain Waitrose has apologized after being accused of racism over the names of three chocolate ducklings. The Waitrose trio of chocolate Easter ducklings contains a white milk and dark chocolate version, which were named Fluffy, Crispy, and Ugly, respectively. A Twitter user questioned why Waitrose had chosen to call the darkest duckling ugly. Waitrose has since apologized in short, short statements seen by CNN. We're very sorry for any upset caused by the name of this product. It was absolutely not our intention to cause any offense. We changed the labeling, and our ducklings are now back on sale. And months after jokingly criticizing Imagine Dragons music, Foster the People singer Mark Foster has apologized, addressing his note to the frontman of Imagine Dragons, who had recently spoken out against the vile comments his band has been getting for years. Foster apologized. I've been burdened by something I feel I need to amend. I would like to apologize to Dan Reynolds and his band, Imagine Dragons. I let some words come out of my mouth that don't reflect who I am or what I stand for, he wrote on Twitter. He was referring to an interview last year where the indie band Frontman joked that they gave all their rejected material to Imagine Dragons. That's, that's not even what I stand for. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. You know, th this isn't who I am or what I stand for. I I'm not apologizing for it, but...
You saw, it was in all the mainstream media stories this week about it's not just machines at Facebook that are listening to you, listening to Alexa at um, Amazon. Amazon has people who are listening to what Alexa is recording so they can help correct Alexa because she apparently is not self-correcting. So there are people there listening to the recordings made on these <laughs> smart speakers. Just, you know, for purpose of educating the machine. No other reason, really, except... More data! More data! We need more data! Come on! More data! More data! Huh? Get some data for me! More data! More data! More data! We need more! More! I don't know if that's the head of Amazon or the head of Facebook or, or what. But it's, it's the mantra of the culture. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations. And whenever you want it. On your audio device of choice. And it'd be just like getting more data if you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Already, thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead. Thanks to Adrian Bodnam, Botters, here at Global Radio in London, and to Garrett Pittman at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for this show you'll find, along with the playlist of music heard here and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts for Easter. The bunny would love them. All at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship station, the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from freezing London. <laughs> <laughs>